We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 133 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 1, plugs out. The spacecraft had been delivered, but of course we had lived with it for, you know, many, many months before at the uh, contractor's plant, uh, North American Rockwell. And we knew that the spacecraft was, you know, in poor shape relative to what it ought to be. We felt like we could fly it. But let's face it, it just wasn't as good as uh, it should have been for the job of flying the first manned Apollo mission. That was astronaut Walter Cunningham commenting on the condition of Spacecraft 12. The plugs out test, scheduled for January 27, 1967, was not the first time that the spacecraft had been put through a simulated run with people on board. When the ship first arrived at the Cape, it was installed in a high-altitude pressure chamber and tested with and without astronauts half a dozen times. Grissom, White, and Chaffee had themselves been at the controls during a simulated run in October, and the backup crew, McDivitt, Swigert, and Scott, had also flown the spacecraft twice inside the vacuum chamber. The final altitude test on December 30th was very successful, and McDivitt and his crew told the engineers they were satisfied with the condition of the spacecraft, as well as its performance. The ship was ready. Just after New Year's Day, it was trundled out to the immense movable gantry that surrounded the Saturn I sitting on pad 34 and hoisted 20 stories into the air and mated to the launch vehicle. On Wednesday, the 25th, Grissom and his teammates mounted the tower and strapped themselves into the spacecraft for a run-through that would verify all connections between the rocket ship and the rocket beneath it. After the hatch was sealed, the cockpit was pressurized with pure oxygen, as it would be on the way to the moon. Since the spacecraft was designed to contain pressure in the vacuum of space, not resist it from the outside, and since the sea level pressure would be somewhere around 14.7 pounds per square inch, the cabin was pressurized to 16 pounds per square inch. Unfortunately, this fact was simply the end result of a string of logical decisions and not something that anyone had planned for. The engineering specifications spoke only of a five-pound oxygen environment. Neither Harrison Storms, nor Charlie Phelps, nor anyone else in top management at North American 
had any idea that there were three men sitting inside the command module surrounded by pure oxygen at 16 pounds per square inch. If Toby Friedman had discovered it, he would have grabbed the phone and told them to hold everything. Toby was a doctor for North American, and every doctor knows of hospital horror stories involving oxygen fires. True, Toby had signed off on the idea of pure oxygen in the command module, but only at NASA's insistence. And then he was under the impression that they were only talking about oxygen at 5 pounds per square inch. At 5 pounds, the pressure inside the command module in the orbit, a lighted cigarette would merely burn rapidly. At 16 pounds, the cigarette would vanish in a flash along with all your hair and your clothes as well. But the men who had planned this test were specialists in other areas. Electronics, physics, computer design, communications, and they had no first-hand experience with oxygen as a killer. They had no reason to question the procedure. This was the way they'd done it all along, on Mercury and Gemini as well and in 16 manned launches, they'd never had a problem. Spacecraft 12 itself had already been subject to six hours of high-pressure oxygen while it was in the high-altitude chamber. There was absolutely nothing in the record to indicate they were running on luck. The test on the 25th simply certified their confidence. Grissom and his crew put the ship through a simulated countdown and the whole thing went off without a hitch. They were done in time for a leisurely dinner, and the spacecraft was declared ready for the next milepost. On Friday, they would repeat this same test, but this time, at the moment of simulated liftoff, the umbilical plugs would actually be pulled out of the spacecraft, disconnecting it from the launch tower and verifying the ship's ability to run on its own power. On Wednesday the 25th, Joe Shea, NASA's manager in charge of the command module, came from Houston to visit the Cape for a meeting with Rocco Patron, the launch director. They spent the next two days discussing the launch delays nose to nose at the top of their voices. Patron had the same difficulty with Shea that Harrison Storms did. For all of Shea's organizational brilliance, he had only a small appreciation of the problems faced by people who had to deal with the nuts and the bolts. But even Patron would admit that Shea's powerful intellect and relentless drive had been a major force in the program's success. Most of the people inside NASA would have agreed with that. And now the general public was about to find out as well. Ben Kate, the Time magazine correspondent from Houston, was tagging along with Shea on his trip, gathering background material for a feature story. A painting of Shea had already been commissioned by the editors. When Grissom, White, and Chaffee left the pad on February 21st, the man on the cover of Time would be Apollo manager Joe Shea. On Thursday, the day before the plugs-out test, astronaut Wally Sherall, 
was talking to Shay about some of the problems with the launch operation and said that Shay should get in the spacecraft with the guys and go through the countdown himself to see what it was like from their perspective. Shay thought it was a good idea. There was room for him on the floor beside Grissom's couch. He asked the test crew to install another communications line in the command module. But the next morning, while Shay was having breakfast with the crew and Deke Slayton, the technicians reported that there were no spare wires into the command module. The only way to connect Shay into the communications loop would be to leave the hatch open. Originally, this test was supposed to have been conducted with the hatch open, but there was always pressure to add another procedure to the schedule. The safety engineers had decided to tack on an emergency egress simulation at the end of this run-through, and for the escape to be realistic, the hatch would have to be sealed. The only way they could run an extra phone link in would be to cancel the emergency egress test. Shay wasn't interested in spending five or six hours as a mute observer without access to the communications loop, so he told them to forget it. Deke Slayton still considered sitting in the capsule during the test, but at the last minute he decided he would be of better service at the blockhouse. During the breakfast with Shay, Grissom took the opportunity to run through the litany of troubles they had had with Spacecraft 12, including the malfunctioning environmental control system, coolant leaks, faulty wiring, and the communications trouble that plagued almost every test. After breakfast, Shay went on a quick tour of the launch pad with Rocco Patron and then flew back to Houston. Just after lunch on Friday, January 27th, Grissom, White, and Chaffee suited up and mounted the bus for the ride to Pad 34. At the base of the umbilical tower, they entered the elevator and rode 20 stories up to the apex of the tower with the wind whistling through the open girders of the gantry. They descended a short stairway into the huge swing arm that connected the tower to the spacecraft. When Grissom eased himself into the command couch at 1 p.m., the cockpit was already alive and humming. The countdown had been underway since 7.42 a.m., and the ship's pulse was being monitored in crowded radio rooms from Washington to California. Below in the blockhouse and in the launch control center and in mission control in Houston, over 1,000 people manned the consoles. With the count holding at T-2 hours and 25 minutes, the astronauts settled into their three parallel couches, Grissom on the left at the commander's console, Chaffee on the right managing the environmental systems, and White in the middle covering communications and navigation. They plugged their suits into the oxygen and communication systems, and the hatches were sealed, first the pressure vessel inner hatch, then the outer access hatch then the boost protection shield. 
right from the outset, they could tell it was not going to be a good day. Grissom told the blockhouse there was a foul odor in the cockpit, and the countdown was halted, so a group of technicians known as the Watermelon Gang could check the cabin atmosphere with their melon-shaped air sampler. They didn't find anything, and by then the smell had vanished, so the count was picked up once more. Then it happened again and again. They checked it out and couldn't find anything. Then they began to hear static in the headsets, and somewhere in the communications labyrinth, there was a mic switch stuck in the open position. Grissom was fed up. He said, quote, How do you expect us to get to the moon if you people can't even hook up with a ground station? Get with it out there. End quote. Laboriously, they slogged their way through the checklist, and after several holds, they were at T minus 10 minutes and ready pull the plugs out of the spacecraft when the radios began acting up again. A lot of people listening in were beginning to wonder why they didn't just scrub the test. But it was Friday, and the astronauts wanted to be done with it. Besides, they were due back in Houston for a major party sponsored by Field Enterprises and Life magazine the next day. I hesitated to play this next clip. It is real, it is graphic, and it is horrifying. We're about to hear the crew of Apollo 1 lose their lives. This is not for children. If you want to skip this clip, fast forward about three and a half minutes. This is the NASA ground loop transmission between Apollo 1, the operations and checkout building, and Launch Complex 34 Blockhouse Control Room. The first voice you will hear is Grissom complaining about the communication problems, then a long one minute of static, some shuffling noises, Chaffee's notification of a fire in the cockpit, and his final transmission, then some reaction from NASA personnel. Notice how little time passed between Chaffee's notification of the fire and his final transmission. But how are you going to get the moon? We can't talk between two or three buildings.
In the tiny control room at the top of the umbilical tower on pad 34, North American crew chief Don Babbitt had just heard the word fire in his headset. Jumping up from his desk, he shouted, Get him out of there! He hit the alarm, but as he pushed the button to call the blockhouse, a sheet of flame flashed from the spacecraft, and the concussion knocked Babbitt to his knees. In terror, he and the rest of his crew ran for their lives, scrambling across the swing arm to the tower, followed by the concussion of secondary explosions. At the elevator, they turned and looked back, Babbitt grabbed a man still wearing a headset. We're on fire. I need firemen, ambulances, and equipment. Coughing, shouting, he rallied his men. They gathered fire extinguishers from the wall. Those who couldn't find gas masks fought their way unaided through the black smoke, choking, blinded, hands burned, surrounded by flame and high explosive. They struggled to open the hatch. At the blockhouse... Deke Slayton heard the report of fire and his gaze shot to a nearby closed-circuit television monitor. It showed the picture from a camera pointed at the command module's hatch window. The window was filled with bright flame. Suddenly, there was another message from the spacecraft. This time, very clear, an urgent voice said, We've got a fire in the cockpit. Slayton recognized the voice of Roger Chaffee. Chaffee was on the right side of the spacecraft where the radio controls were. It was his job, in an emergency, to maintain contact with the blockhouse. On the television monitor, Slayton could see Ed White's arms reaching back over his head, trying to undo the bolts that held the side hatch shut. Neither Slayton nor anyone else in the blockhouse fully understood what was happening. Slayton would say later that his main concern was not fire but smoke. But now Slayton heard another voice, clearly frantic. We've got a bad fire. We're burning up. At first, Slayton thought it was pad leader Don Babbitt, stationed next to the spacecraft, calling for help. Later on, the taped listeners identified the voices as Chaffee's. Seconds later, less than half a minute after the first report of fire, Slayton and his horrified controllers heard the last transmission from Apollo 1. It was a brief cry of pain. Long seconds passed. Now the communication loop surged with activities as technicians struggled to get the hatch open. It's too hot, you could hear them say. 
On the television monitor, through dense smoke, Slayton could see the pad crews approaching the hatch, only to be driven back by the intense heat. Rosa tried several times to re-establish contact with the crew with no response. Several long minutes elapsed before the hatch was finally opened, and a short time after, the pad leader came on the communications loop with a tense and ominous transmission. Quote, I better not describe what I see, end quote. Physicians Fred Kelly and Alan Harder were in the blockhouse, and Slate instructed them to go to the pad. Then he put in a call to the Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston to set up a command center and get word to the families in case things were as bad as he feared. After several minutes, the call came from the doctors confirming what everyone had dreaded. Slayton made another call to Houston. Then he and Rusa left the blockhouse and headed to Pad 34. Rocco Patron describes his experience in the blockhouse. I was looking at a TV on my uh, launch director's console. I saw a a flash, and uh, uh, the spacecraft really burst into, into flame. At Mission Control in Houston, Chris Kraft was listening to several communication loops when the accident happened. This is his description. Suddenly I heard confused and loud talk in my ear. People were yelling, and I thought I heard muffled screams. I stood bolt upright, a cold shiver running up my spine, and I heard someone yell, We're on fire! My God, I thought, and before I could think more I heard a voice yelling, Get us out of here! I felt sure it was Roger. The sounds of confused scuffing and movement echoed in my headset along with a report of a fire in the white room, the clean room surrounding the spacecraft. I started praying harder than I'd ever prayed in my life. At the same time, I kept my finger off the mic button. I desperately wanted to ask the test conductor for an update, but I knew that he had his hands full, and I'd only be an intrusion. Around me in mission control, there was an awful silence. Every member of my team sat white-faced and rigid, every ear tuned to the terrible sounds coming from the Cape. We were 900 miles away and helpless. This was not an emergency that Mission Control could handle. The test conductor, George Page, came on the line. His voice was shaky and filled with emotion. There was a fire in the spacecraft, and the white room was full of flame and smoke. It was clearing, and they were trying to get to the spacecraft hatch. I heard his words, and I heard despair. He said no more. I watched two minutes go by on the clock, then asked the worst question I could imagine. Test conductor, flight, what about the crew? His answer jolted us to our souls. Quote, not much hope, flight. We'll have the hatch open in a minute. End quote. About that long went by before a voice came on the loop. I couldn't tell if it was Paige or someone else. The crew is dead. My stomach lurched, and I felt sick all over, so weak and drained that I almost collapsed into my chair. We had put three astronauts in harm's way and made their escape impossible. They were dead, and we knew that it was our fault. At North American Aviation in Downey, California, Harrison Storms was in a meeting when he received the news. 
Storm's secretary, Polly Carr, threw open the door to the conference room and stood for an instant like the specter of death. She said, Control is on the line from the Cape. There's a fire in the spacecraft. The blood drained from Storm's face. He said, Put the tie line in from the Cape into the speakers here in the conference room and plug me directly into Jim Pierce at the Cape. It was already too late for them to hear the final scream from the spacecraft. A voice crackled on the speakers. Hello, Downey. This is Pierce. I can see smoke rising from the top of the stack on the pad, and the instruments on our panels indicate rapidly rising temperature and pressure inside the spacecraft. We've got men working on the escape hatch, but it's too hot to handle. The whole thing could blow up at any minute. Storm said, What can you see from where you are, Jim? Can the guys make it out? Jim said, I hate to say it, but I don't think so. Hold it. There's fire spewing from the bottom of the spacecraft and down the side of the service module. I can see molten metal falling away. There's no hope now. Over the loudspeaker, Jim Pierce's dreadful description was underscored by the sound of sobbing from people listening in on the loop. All around the conference room, the horrified rocket scientists were sagging in their chairs, stunned, disbelieving, and Storms was ghastly pale. In Washington, D.C., North American Aviation's chief engineer Lee Atwood was about to sit down to dinner with Jim Webb, Werner von Braun, Bob Gilruth, and a couple of dozen of his contemporaries at the pinnacle of the U.S. aerospace industry. In the wake of the current string of Apollo's successes, the mood was about as bubbly as a group like this could ever get. They had just come from the reception for Dobrynin, and now they were drinking expensive whiskey in the genteel surroundings of the International Club. Vice President Hubert Humphrey was there, along with Tiger Teague and the rest of the Congressional Space Delegation. One of the club attendants came into the room looking for Lee Atwood. He was wanted on the phone. The telephone was on the alcove off the main room, and as Atwood worked his way through the crowds, he was not concerned. His life was filled with urgent calls. He picked up the telephone. It was Storms. He said, Lee, we had a terrible tragedy. There was a fire in the spacecraft, and the three astronauts have been killed. Atwood did not understand at first. Storms repeated it. Even the second time, it made no sense. Fire in the spacecraft? There was nothing in the spacecraft that could burn. But Storm's jackhammer description left no room for doubt. Dazed, Atwood grabbed Bob Gilruth, who was passing by with a drink in his hand, and said, Bob, have you heard about this tragedy at the Cape? Gilruth had not. Atwood handed him the phone and said, Talk to Stormy, and he went off to break the news to Webb. As he moved through the room, Von Braun and the other executives were being called to the phone. Within minutes, the room was crackling with dozens of excited conversations, and then dinner was served, but no one could eat. Mac McDonald said he had a Grumman Gulf Stream parked at Washington National. 
he offered Atwood a ride, and within the hour, they were in the air on the way to the Cape. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.